Thanks for bringing the church into this makeshift auditorium this morning. My name is Jamie, one of the pastors around here. Excited to have you guys with us as we move into week two of a summer sermon series. We'll get there momentarily. But before we do, um, just to add another voice, another angle on something that's coming up uh, in the life of our church as far as our summer calendar is concerned. Uh, in a couple weeks, uh, we're going to host an equip night here. Um, we try to do events from time to time that have one of two purposes, either uh, connecting people to one another um, or equipping people for the purpose of where we're going in terms of gospel transformation. And so uh, this morning, or uh, yeah, this morning, I'm going to address uh, an equipping event that's coming up a couple weeks from now. You may have heard us uh, talking about this over the course of the last couple weeks. Um, the weekend of June 23rd and 24th, a Friday evening and um, a Saturday, uh, carrying us from, I believe, like 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., we're going to host an event uh, entitled Understanding and Answering Atheism. Uh, we're actually webcasting uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries up on our giant screen here. Uh, and we're going to set up the auditorium for people to come in and engage a number of topics that have to do uh, with this, this issue of atheism. And one of the questions that, that I think has probably gone through a number of people's minds is, um, is this for me if I uh, don't find myself connected to confessional atheists in this season of my life? Um, because that would be me right now. I've certainly... Uh, seen my life intertwined with people who would declare with their very lips, I'm an atheist, I don't believe there's a God. Um, but in this particular season of life, that is, that's not the case. And so uh, the question begs to be answered, is this for me? And I mentioned this last Sunday as we were getting ready to leave, that uh, there's another form of atheism aside from confessional atheism, uh, namely functional atheism. There are those who would declare they believe that there is a God, but functionally wake up every day and live as though he does not Exists. And so uh, I think that's an, an interesting angle, particularly in the Bible Belt, to bring to an event like this. And so I'm coming in with notepad in hand that weekend, ready to engage and ask questions uh, pertaining to what's in this with respect to those people who would declare, yes, I believe there's a God, but wake up and live as though he doesn't exist from sunup to sundown, from the moment their head rises off the pillow to the moment their head hits the pillow again late at night. And so if that's you, if you're surrounded by people, you go, man, yeah, I, I know people who would declare that God is real, that he exists, but live as though he isn't real and doesn't exist, then I think this could be a really good event for you. And so I would encourage you to go on our website and sign up. Uh, you can even do that in the next couple of minutes if you want on your phone as I'm introing uh, the passage of scripture that we'll be in this morning. As I mentioned momentarily, uh, or just a moment ago, uh, we began a series last Sunday entitled Songs of the Savior, a 10-week exploration of the book of Psalms, and, and not just a random selection of, of any 10 Psalms, but rather in preparation for our study of the book of Hebrews as a church, which is coming this fall, we're going to look at the 10 particular Psalms that the author of Hebrews cites in his writing. And what that means is that our time in the scriptures this summer is only going to enrich our time in the scriptures this fall and moving into next spring. So that when we get to the book of Hebrews this fall, you'll actually be able to go back and access your notes, even the podcast from this summer, and see how all the pieces fit together, which should be really cool. The book of Psalms, as I mentioned last week, has been referred to as the hymn book of the Old Testament. It's a collection of songs meant to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, glory, and grace. The psalms were sung in the temple by God's people collectively in corporate worship. 
Uh, and they were also sung in private times of devotion, similar to the way we use the Psalms today. We're talking about a book that is so important that those tiny little pocket-sized New Testaments include it, even though it's not part of the New Testament. It's a book that not only informs us, but transforms us. Tremper Longman, in his commentary, says this. He says, The Psalms appeal to the whole person. They demand a total response. The Psalms inform our intellect. They arouse our emotions. They direct our wills and stimulate our imaginations. When we read the Psalms with faith, we come away changed and not simply informed. In the Psalms, we come face to face with God and ourselves. We see the beauty of God's character, his nature, his being, and we encounter the fullness of the human condition and experience, which is why you see the gamut of emotions in this book of the Bible. The reason we've entitled this series Songs of the Savior is this. The author of Hebrews tells us that these 10 Psalms in particular that we're going to look at this summer ultimately point to Jesus. And not only that, the entire book of Psalms ultimately points to Jesus. Again, if this is the hymn book of the Old Testament meant to to sing of God's goodness, glory, and grace, we know that God's goodness, glory, and grace are most surely revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we have an opportunity in this series to sing Psalms of praise to him as our Savior, King, and coming Judge. We have an opportunity to sing songs of lament to him as our high priest and advocate seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We have an opportunity to sing psalms of thanksgiving to him for who he is and what he's done for us. We have an opportunity to sing psalms of remembrance to him as we survey all of redemptive history which finds its fulfillment in him. We have an opportunity to sing psalms of confidence to him because he's trustworthy. And we have an opportunity to sing psalms of wisdom to him because he is wisdom personified and the source of all wisdom. I said this last week, the heart sings of that in which it delights. And so the hope for this series is that you and I would delight in God. And as we delight in him, as we see and savor him for who he is, that our our lives would become more and more songs of praise to our God. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm 104 this morning. That's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, underneath uh, one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can open up to this morning's psalm in that Bible. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, uh, please take that Bible as the churches give to you and enjoy it this summer. Enjoy it forever, actually. You don't have to bring it back, but particularly this summer. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, I don't think that we're going to, for many of us, encounter any, anything that we haven't seen before, theologically speaking. But I do think we are going to encounter truth that begs the question, has it seeped down into the deep recesses of our being, down to the seat of our emotions? We're going to encounter you as creator and as sustainer. And God, I pray that we would see the beauty of who you are, who you are for us, that we would see the fulfillment of this psalm ultimately in your son, Jesus Christ, and that as a result of our time in the scriptures this morning, that we would find a song on our lips and that we would walk out of this place with our lives, a song for the world to see. So would you move, Holy Spirit, Do what only you can do. Open our eyes to see the glories and riches of our God and King. Open our hearts to receive it. Open our ears to hear it. 
God, would you do that now? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Psalm 104 is, is what's known as a, a hymn of praise. Last week we looked at Psalm 2, which was a royal psalm, a kingship psalm. This morning we look at a hymn of praise. It's a declaration of the Lord as creator and sustainer of the world, the one who brought the world into being and the one who keeps it going. The reason the world has not just fallen apart right now is because God's holding it together as you sit in your very seat this morning. The psalmist takes us on a wide-ranging survey of creation filled with incredible images that we're going to encounter this morning. And what those images are going to collectively reveal to us is the sovereign king of the universe, the one who created everything, the one who controls chaos, the one who sustains life by his provision, and the one who is sovereign even over death, that there's nothing outside of his control. This sovereign God over all of creation is to be praised and enjoyed. And so the psalmist begins doing just that. In verse 1, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is, this is one of those examples of what we mean when we, when we use that phrase, preaching the gospel to yourself. This idea of grabbing your soul by the proverbial collar and declaring, Listen up, soul. This is your God. This is, this is who this God is for you. These are the promises that this God offers you in Christ. That's what we encounter here. That's what the psalmist is doing. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Soul, it's time to do a little praising here. Soul, it's time to get caught up in the wonder of who God is. And so the natural question is this. Who is this God that the psalmist is caught up in the wonder of? I mean, your view of God will shape the way you live your very life. If you believe God to be an angry old man in the sky waiting, you to, uh, waiting to zap you with lightning bolts when you mess up, then you'll live a life of fear. If you believe God to be a divine Santa Claus who distributes blessings to all who are nicer than they are naughty, then you'll live a life of morality, but simply to get what you want in life and to avoid the bag of coal at all costs. If you believe that God is a, a divine clockmaker who wound up the universe and then checked out on his creation then you'll live a life in which God is irrelevant and man is left to run the show. Uh, deism is quite convenient. And so who is this God that the psalmist is convinced is worthy of our praise? Thankfully, he doesn't leave us speculating. He goes on to provide a description. The second part of verse 1, he says, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. The Lord is described as being clothed with attributes fit for a king, splendor, majesty. He's the king seated on his throne. Splendor and majesty are the robe that he wears. He's also clothed with light, communicating something of his holiness. But not just his holiness. Light also alludes to the first act of creation, Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. In fact, this psalm, in many ways, follows the creation story in Genesis 1. You begin with light, declared here in verse, uh, verses 2 and 3. And then the heavens, and then the lands, and the waters, and then the plants and trees, and then the sun and moon, and finally the swarms of living creature. Very similar ordering to what you encounter here in Psalm 104. It's taking us back to the very beginning, to the creator of the universe, and the speaking of his creation into existence. Make no mistake about it. God is very different from us. He's the creator and we're the created. We cannot lose our creatureliness and God cannot lose his deity. But here's the beauty of this story. God is not only distinct from his creation, but he's heavily 
involved in his creation. Notice, according to verses 1 and 2, it's amazing how one word can change everything. Notice that this God is personal. O Lord, my God. We're going to sing those words later on in the service. Think about that as those words roll off of your lips. O Lord, my God. He's not the God of deism who wound up the clock of human history and checked out on his creation. The very Bible that you're holding in your hand right now as we speak is a declaration that God wants to be known. That we're not left to speculation as to who he is. We can know him, not exhaustively, but truly as he's revealed himself to us in scripture. That he's involved in the very lives of his creatures as we're gonna see throughout the entirety of this incredible psalm. Oh Lord, my God personal, involved, and yet clothed with majesty and splendor, distinct, absolute. The psalmist goes on to describe the Lord's actions. The end of verse two, he says, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. The psalmist begins with the heavens, which God stretches out like a tent, as if we're going camping here, and the tent is the universe. That's crazy. He lays the beams of his throne on the waters, meaning not the oceans and rivers, but rather the waters above the heavens, that God is enthroned above all of his creation. In fact, the word chambers in verse 3 would have brought to mind uh, the chambers built above the first story of a house to create a place of privacy, a place of seclusion. It communicates something of God's involvement that the chambers are connected to the, to the waters, but it also communicates something of God's separation from his creation in that it sits above creation. Verses three and four tell us that the clouds and the wind do his bidding, that he's sovereign over all nature and weather. The messengers in verse four are angelic beings, and so he's sovereign even over angels. Nothing is outside of his control. According to these verses, God is seated above the heavens, commanding the wind and the clouds and the host of heaven. And then you get into verses five through nine where a shift takes place as the psalmist moves from the heavens to the earth. He says this, he says, you set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. That this is the God who took that which is formless and shaped it into a theater. A theater that would make the fox look sad and pathetic in comparison. A divine stage upon which this glorious redemptive historical drama would play out, separating the waters from the land, and not only creating, but commanding, telling the waters where they're allowed to crash and swell. I don't know if you're going to the beach this summer, but if you do, think about this. When you stand at that water's edge, the reason that the water's edge finds itself at your feet is because God says so. That's pretty incredible. You, God, set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. This is the God who not only creates but also establishes order. He harnesses chaos simply by speaking. Anybody bring a little chaos into this room this morning? That's good news. That's your God. He goes on to say in verse 10, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. 
They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. These verses are all about God's provision. He not only creates life, but he sustains life. He waters the earth from above and below. From below you make springs gush forth in the valleys, the psalmist says. From above, from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. That God cares for his creation. He quenches the thirst of his creatures. He provides them with branches in which to nest. He causes them to sing with delight. Even the earth, verse 13, finds itself satisfied by God's provision. He goes on to say, verse 14, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Now we see that it's not just about donkeys and birds, it's about you and me. That our provision as human beings is dependent upon God. He strengthens our hearts with bread. And not only that, it's not just about supplying our needs. Bread sustains us, but we don't need wine and oil. Those things move beyond necessity to enjoyment. That this God not only crafts the world with care and provision, uh, but he also creates the world with a capacity for pleasure. We see it throughout this psalm. The songs of the birds. I heard them last night singing in the trees as I sat on my deck. The sea as a playground for Leviathan. We'll get there momentarily. Wine to gladden our hearts. He's the source of all of our provision and care and the source of every stream of joy that makes up creation, pointing to him as the ultimate fountain of joy. We're not meant to stop with the enjoyment of creation. We're meant to look to its source, to God, and worship him. He goes on to say, verse 16, The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Here we see God orchestrating the very zip codes in which the creatures of the earth shall live. It's crazy. You ever thought about that? There's a reason kangaroos don't inhabit the woodlands of the state of Georgia. It's because God said so. Just like he does with the ocean, telling it where it can go no further, so he does with the animals. Again, we see both God's order and his care for creation, and even for us. There's a reason that you're here in this place on planet Earth right now. God's moving and working and orchestrating in all of that. He goes on to say, verse 19, you made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. And when the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Heavenly bodies were, uh, were worshipped by many in the ancient Near, Near East. And that kind of thinking actually lives on. Um, thanks to the Romans, today is Sun's Day. And tomorrow will be Moon's Day, Monday. Yesterday was Saturn's Day. This psalm is a declaration that, that heavenly bodies are not to be worshipped. They're part of God's good creation. Stage lighting, you might say, hanging from the cosmos is a part of God's divine theater. Established instruments for marking times and seasons for his creatures. So that if you enjoy the warmth of summer this time of year, that's God's doing. You can thank him for that. 
If you appreciate the colors of fall, God does that. The crisp, cold air of winter, the flowers of spring, all God. And on and on we could go. It's God who's responsible for every sunset, every sunrise, every moonlit night. He rules the calendar. He rules the seasons. He operates the stage lighting hanging from the cosmos. The wisdom and wonder of God's creative work causes the psalmist to burst forth in praise. He just can't help himself. Moving into verse 24, he says, Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. There are creatures we don't even know about. The Mariana Trench blows my mind. I want somebody to invent something that can go so deep that we can find things, things that we've never seen before. And yet there's some sense in which God doesn't let us do that to, to keep something mysterious about his glory. It's quite amazing. Anyone ever think that God was taking a nap when ants were made? How about jellyfish? According to verse 24, every part of God's creation is the outworking of his wisdom. Living things both small and great from the tiniest of insects to the largest of creatures, created to play their part in this unfolding drama that makes every fiction novel seem boring by comparison. There's a book I, I read recently, I'd commend it to you. It's by a guy named N.D. Wilson. It's entitled Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, and he gets after the heart of, of, I think, verses 24 through 26 very well as he kind of unfolds this idea that every day when we wake up, we're playing our part in this glorious, redemptive, historical drama that that little ant crawling across your back porch, you're the only character in God's divine drama that gets to see that ant that day. Kind of crazy when you think about it. So much wisdom. You're meant to look at Psalm 104 and go, I could never, I could never dream up this story on my own, let alone its characters. Only you, God, in your infinite wisdom and creativity could come up with all of this. Every fiction novel that you read is not meant to be an escape from the real world. It's meant to help you better understand the world in which we live. This world's crazy. We're spinning around a ball of fire in the sky going mock something speed-wise. I, I don't know what that is. We're in a world where uh, little uh, goopy creatures turn into butterflies. It's a weird world. It's a fiction world, and yet it's real. That's the world we're meant to see in Psalm 104, he goes on to say in verse 27, These all, these creatures, look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. The, this idea that we or any of God's creatures can truly live a life of autonomy is absurd. Every living creature, verse 28, can only gather what God gives. And that includes the air that we breathe. The breath that you're going to take before I finish this very sentence that's coming out of my mouth right this very moment, that's a gift from God. He's sovereign over life by the sending forth of his spirit, and he's sovereign over death. David said it. Well, in Psalm 139, he said, Your eyes, God, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before I breathed my first breath, you knew every day 
that was going to play out in my very story all the way up to the very last one when I would breathe my last breath. God is sovereign in our living and God is sovereign in our dying. God is sovereign over everything. Notice the word you over and over again in these verses. You give. You open your hand. You hide your face. You take away their breath. You send forth your spirit. You renew the face of the ground. God is the one who primarily acts here. He's the one who gives. He's the one who takes away. And this is warrant. This is crazy, okay, in my mind at least. This is warrant, according to the psalmist, not for questioning, but for praise. That's unbelievable. It goes on to say, verse 31, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Even earthquakes and volcanoes are for God's glory. They declare his wisdom and power. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The psalmist acknowledges that God holds the keys to life and death. And so he says, as long as there's breath in these lungs, I'm going to praise my God. I'm going to praise the God of Psalm 104. He will get the glory, and in my praise of him, my joy will be made complete. And part of his praise... It's his longing for everything sad about this world to come untrue. This goes back to what we talked about last week, that he longs for God to wipe away God's enemies in order to create eternal peace and joy for his followers. That Though this world is glorious in many ways, it's not what it one day will be when God sets all things right. And this God who creates and sustains can be trusted to restore all things in the end. Now, here's the deal. We launched this series declaring that each of these psalms that we're going to look at in this series point to Jesus. So you might be inclined to ask, how in the world does a psalm like Psalm 104 point to Jesus? And so let's just crash course this this glorious drama from start to finish very briefly. Let's start with creation. When you think of creation, you're not meant to remove Jesus from that glorious work. He was there. He was involved. John 1 says it so clearly. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1 makes crystal clear that Jesus had a hand in creation from the very beginning, that Jesus was around in creating all these things that you see in Psalm 104. Nothing was made that was created apart from him. He created, think about it this way, if you think of it as a a glorious stage, a divine theater, He created the very stage upon which he himself would step. The glorious cosmic theater that he would enter as the hero of it all. Going back to verse 3. The clouds and wind do his bidding. Verse 7. The waters respond to his rebuke. Which is why in Mark chapter 5. Jesus could rebuke the wind and the waves. In the midst of a storm at sea with his disciples. And the wind and the waves had no choice but to obey. Just like the ocean standing at your feet that can go no further when you stand on the shoreline. The wind and the waves said, you got it, Jesus. The author of Hebrews will use verse 4. We'll see this in the fall to declare that Jesus is greater than the angels. That he is the one seated above the heavens. The one who harnesses chaos 
simply by speaking. And not only is Jesus creator, but he's also sustainer. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says it this way. It says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That the same authoritative word that brought the world into existence is the same authoritative word that sustains it. All of creation, including each of our lives, hangs in the balance moment by moment. And the difference between life and death is Jesus' authoritative, sustaining word. He is our source of provision and care. Which leads me to the, the greatest act of, of provision and care in all of human history. This psalm, it, it declare, declares some incredible things. And it might be really easy to miss it in the midst of 35 verses because it's so subtle. But the psalm... Though it declares some glorious things, it also declares that the world is not as it should be. It speaks of death. Verse 29, of man returning to the dust along with the creatures of the earth. That's an allusion to Genesis 3.19. In the wake of sin's entrance into the world through the sin and rebellion of our first parents, the first image bearers to inhabit the earth, God says this to Adam. He says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But death is a result of sin. It's sin's curse. The fact that you and I will one day return to dust is due to man's rebellion against God. And we're not just talking about physical death, but spiritual death. The umbilical cord between us and God has been relationally severed. Death has a knife, you might say, at the throat of man, both physically and spiritually. But here's the good news. Jesus, in order to save us, says, my throat in exchange for yours. That's the glory of the gospel. Coming back to Psalm 104, verse 1. That we can only declare, O Lord, my God, my God, because of Jesus. The, the creator of this cosmic theater stepped into that very theater is a character. He lived the sinless life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. And those who trust in him as savior and king, as maker and redeemer can know the joy of being reconciled to the one who hung stars in the sky. That's unbelievable, people. The joy of being able to say relationally to the God who spread the heavens like a tent, you're my God. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can, can bring the joy of being able to say physically that death will not have the final word in our lives. Which leads me to the final chapter of the story. Yes, Jesus is creator, sustainer, and redeemer, but he's also restorer. Going back to verse 35, it's Jesus who will one day return to make everything about this world that's sad, untrue, forever. It's Jesus who will wipe away his enemies in order to create eternal peace and joy for his followers. That it's at Jesus' return that you and I will be changed in an instant. Your body is ill-equipped for the new heaven and earth. I don't know if you've figured that out by now. I'm figuring it out more and more. I've gotten to the point in life where if I don't take my multivitamin in the morning, it goes bad for me. And that's sad. I feel old. Perishable and mortal, those are not adjectives that will be used when Jesus returns to make this, uh, this sad world untrue. God's going to get creative in a blink with you and adorn you with adjectives suited for eternity with him. That's incredible. 
It's amazing when you think about Psalm 104, you get the, the beauty of, of all of this divine redemptive historical drama from start to finish, from the story of creation to the fallen nature of man to the hope of redemption in Christ to the most glorious of happily ever afters to come. Which leads me to one final question. As I mentioned last week, it's a question that we'll wrestle with each week of this series, which is this, what is our song to sing as a church? Again, the heart sings of that in which it delights. We're meant to, to delight in, in something as we engage Psalm 104. What are we meant to delight in? As his redeemed people, what lyrics are, are meant to make up the song of the church? Let, let me just throw out two prominent lyrics that I see in this particular psalm, and, and, and you can certainly add other lyrics to the track. Number one, he is the creator of all things and is worthy of our praise. Look, look around. When you leave this place, look. Look out on, on the glory, the majesty, the wisdom, the creativity of his handiwork. It's all around you. Before you even get to your car, admire it. Marvel at who he is as the creator. Let it blow your mind that this glorious God enthroned above the heavens loves you. He loves his creation and you're the crown and glory of his handiwork as his image bears. And in Christ, you're loved by the one who hung stars in the sky. If you read Psalm 104, it's really interesting. The psalmist bounces back and forth from he, God does this, he creates in this way, to you, God, you do this. Like He, he just jumps into worship. He goes from theology to doxology in a blink, and he just bounces back and forth. He, it's like he can't talk in third person anymore because he's so caught up in the wonder of who God is that he has to declare it to God himself personally. We're meant to sing. We're, we're meant to have our lives function as a song of praise in light of who this God is. The wisdom, the splendor, the majesty of God our creator. And the second lyric is this. He is the sustainer of all things and is worthy of our gratitude, trust, and devotion. That every one of us in this room uh, has so much, so much to be thankful for. If nothing more than the breath you breathed two seconds ago or the one you're going to breathe two seconds from now, he's worthy of our gratitude. He sends the rain to water the earth. He's about to do it for eight days in a row, and I'm frustrated at him for that, and I should be grateful. It's his kindness. He sustains us with bread. He delights us with oil and wine. He's worthy of our gratitude, of our enjoyment, and also our trust. He holds the power of life and death. And as the psalmist says, we can trust him in his giving and in his taking away. As Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he's not only sovereign, but he's also wise and good. It's part of the critical nature of understanding the first verse and the last verse of Psalm 104. You go, man, how am I supposed to engage with a psalm like this? And it goes back to this grabbing your soul by the proverbial collar. If, if, if you're in a, a season where everything's come unraveled for you, all the more reason to go, listen up, soul, this is your God. Your God rebukes the wind and the waves. Your God sustains life. Your God is, is not um, handcuffed when things go wrong. He's got a purpose in all of it. Your God is seated above the heavens on his throne, ruling and reigning. And he loves you so much that he entered into the very narrative itself and experienced suffering. He knows what it's like. He can empathize with you. 
If ever there was a reason to grab yourself by the proverbial collar and, and preach Psalm 104, it's, it's, it's if everything has come unraveled for you. He's worthy of our trust. And lastly, he's worthy of our allegiance, our obedience. The creator king enthroned above the heavens has done more for us than we could ever deserve. How can we not respond with a life of devotion? This goes back to last week. He's the king who demands my life, my soul, my all. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, Realizing our moment-by-moment dependence on God the Creator for our very existence makes it appropriate to live lives of devotion, commitment, gratitude, and loyalty toward Him, and scandalous not to. Godliness starts here, with God the sovereign Creator as the first focus of our thoughts. And so again, the question begs to be answered, are these lyrics part of the song of your heart. He is the creator of all things and is worthy of my praise as his created. He is the sustainer of all things and is worthy of my gratitude, trust, and devotion. I said this last week and I'll say it again. We have a song to sing, and not just in the coming moments as we move into a time of reflection, but a song that we carry with us as we, as we leave this place. We have an opportunity to sing with our lives of, of a good, wise, and sovereign God robed in splendor and majesty and yet filled with love and compassion at the same time for us as his creatures, as his redeemed.